When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to this week's episode of Something Rhymes with Purple, the podcast about words and language and just general witterings about the things that we love. Um, I'm Susie Dent and with me as always is Giles Brandreth and he is the one behind the most interesting witterings I should say. Hi Giles. It's good to be with you Susie. It's exciting because today we're going to talk about circuses and I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about circuses for a variety of reasons. And I have credentials, as well as a bit of a record here. The reason I'm interested in circuses goes back to a time before I can remember. When I was born, I was born in Germany after the Second World War, because my parents were part of something called the Allied Control Commission. My father was in the British Army, but he was also a lawyer. And the Allied Control Commission was the part of the sort of people who went to what was the the British part of Germany after the Second World War. Germany was divided by the the, the victors in the war into regions. The Russians had a section, the French had a section, the British had a section, and um, the Americans had a section. And my parents were in the British section. And they got someone to look after me, a couple, a husband and wife couple. And the man in this husband and wife couple, they were like nannies, and they helped around the house. And the husband had been a circus clown. So Mm -hmm. when I was just a toddler, I spent days with a circus clown. There wasn't a lot of work for circuses in Germany after the war, as you can imagine, who taught me when I was a little boy to walk the tightrope, to stand on my head. I was introduced to circus skills as a wee boy. So I think this has influenced my whole life. Indeed, I can still stand on my head. I don't walk the tightrope. I did when I was a member of Parliament, but I don't now, though my personal trainer is impressed by my sense of balance. So I learned circus skills when I was small. Then we came back to live in England, and in the 1950s, we lived in Earl's Court, in a block of flats overlooking the Earl's Court Centre. Do you remember the Earl's Court? There was an enormous uh, stadium there. I don't. Oh, they used to have the Royal Tournament there. It was built in Victorian times. It was pulled down about 10, 15 years ago. Anyway. Oh, actually, I did see the Royal Tournament once. I must must have have been been there. there. And things like the the Daily Mail Ideal Home Exhibition used to take place there, and the the Motor Show and the Caravan Show, all that kind of thing. Anyway, there were often circuses there. And I was taken, I think, in 1956, when I was seven or eight years of age, to see the Moscow State Circus. And after the performance, you could go around to meet the animals. 
And they weren't just animals to meet, they were performers to meet. And I met and shook the hand of the most famous clown in the world at the time. And some would say the most famous clown of all. Somebody called Popoff the Clown. I have shaken mm -hmm. Popoff's hand. Hope you're impressed. Oleg Popoff. He was a Soviet clown, a Russian clown. Lenin, when he became the ruler of Russia after the Russian Revolution and through the 1920s, decided that circuses should be the entertainment of the people, that they would be accessible to everybody. And so circus performers with their animals and circus clowns and acrobats became revered characters in Soviet Russia. And this fellow Popov, who was quite young when I met him, he, he lived, he was born in 1930, so he'd only been in his mid-20s when I met him. He lived up until 2016. He truly was the most, he was known as the Sunshine Clown. And he did an amazing trick. A box was brought onto the stage, the height of a man, and the lid of the box was taken off, a cardboard box. And out of this box, jumped, in one jump, pop off. And he had a checked hat, a black and white checked hat and a red nose, traditional clown makeup. And anyway, I shook his hand. And that's when, for me, it all began. And I know some people, like you, aren't comfortable with clowns. We've discussed this before. You aren't, are you? No, I think lots of different reasons for that. One is, um, as we, we talked about, because we, we talked about fun fairs a few weeks ago, and we didn't really get under the big top enough. So that's why we decided to do a, a separate episode. But I did mention there that... I am, I mean, when I say coulrophobic, I suppose I'm using that word slightly playfully. I think it's the the sounds, the bangs, the unpredictability that I just didn't like as a child. I also really didn't like the use of animals. Thankfully, they are now banned in most circuses, but, you know, I just was always worried about the animals. So it just wasn't a particularly happy place for me. And even now, if I go to a circus and they're using performing horses, it just doesn't sit that comfortably with me. But the language of the circus and the history of the circus and the tribal language of those who work within it is absolutely fascinating. And that's, of course, where my, my brain starts firing. But do you remember where circus itself comes from? I imagine it's going to be a Latin word. It's going to date back to Rome, the Circus Maximus. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. And it goes back to circus meaning a ring, because a Roman circus, like modern circuses, were rounded or sometimes oval arenas and they were lined with tiers of, of seats. But there you would see chariot races and gladiators and, and pretty cruel contests. But then, of course, in London, we have Piccadilly Circus, we have Oxford Circus, and they were attached to open, more or less circular areas in towns where the streets converged. So that's the idea behind the circus in um, place names. So as a place of entertainment, the circus goes back to Roman times. There was the Circus Maximus uh, back in Rome. There was later the Circus Flaminius, the Circus Neronis, something like that. Anyway, it was it was a circus that Nero enjoyed. So there were there were a lot of circuses in in those days. When the Roman Empire disappeared, the circus disappeared as well to be revived. A few centuries later, really, I think 12th, 13th century, there was the Hippodrome of Constantinople, which was like a circus, where indeed, in these old circuses, as well as there being chariot races, there were cruel things going on, like people being put to the lions and all that sort of entertainment, that, of which there are echoes still, sadly, in the uh, idea of the bullring and bullfighting going on, again, something that happens in a circle. 
Yes. But the origin of the modern circus, the circus that we know, that you'd think of as Billy Smart Circus or Jerry Cottle Circus, that goes back to an Englishman, a man called Philip Astley. I know about this because I was lucky enough to be at university with a fellow called Anthony Spate, whose father, George Spate, wrote the definitive history of the circus. So if you're listening to this and you want to know more about circuses, look up Spate, S-P-E-A-I-G-H-T, and everything you want to know about circuses, this man knew. And he celebrated and acknowledges that Philip Astley, born 1742, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, cavalry officer, set up an amphitheatre, to really display horse riding tricks. He was an amazing equestrian and he could ride side saddle bareback. He could stand on the horse. He could go at speed. He did all sorts of extraordinary tricks. And he introduced the idea of acrobats on the horses and indeed fooling around clowns and brought the idea of the jester into the circus ring. So it's Astley's circus that really is the first one. He established his circuses 1740s to 1770 is his time. Mm-hmm. Acrobats, tightrope walkers, jugglers, that's what he put in there. We mentioned Barnum last time, didn't we? And how, although he's been made so famous um, through film, through books, uh, etc., how he was a very unorthodox and some might say very unlikable character. People in this country, uh, we're speaking to you from England, people from the United Kingdom who are famous are Philip Astley and a man called Andrew Ducrow. Also, there was a fellow called Sanger, whose name actually still goes on. In America, it is indeed Phineas Taylor Barnum, a great showman, but maybe his his way with uh, women and his way with some of the acts that he had, he exploited people who had, you know, he had the bearded lady, people who were called midgets. He specialised in these kind of, well, I think they were called freaks. Well, in fact, let's get down to some of the words. I want to know about acrobat, tightrope walker, juggler, where these words come. But let's start with freak show. Where does freak show come from? Freak has a really unlikely beginning because its ultimate ancestor is an old English verb, um, freakian, which meant to dance. And in fact, when you when it first arrived in English, it meant this is around the mid. 16th century. It meant a sudden change of mind. It was like a capricious notion. Um, So it was all about impulse. And we hear authors of the time drawing on the idea of, you know, whimsy when they describe the fickle freaks of fortune. But then because nature behaves unpredictably, I suppose the idea was that it runs off course and then any human being considered to be unusual or in the standards of the time abnormal was therefore equally the sign of a freakish universe, which is how we got to where we are today. And then, you know, by the 19th century, the freak show was in its heyday. And as we said, you know, the girl with four legs, the human skeleton, the bearded lady, etc. And then it changed again when in the 60s, the peaceniks gave us the freak flag, which was long hair. So again, it was the idea of being kind of unorthodox. And then the freak who experienced a bad trip from a drug or hallucinogen was described as freaking out when they lost control as a result. So that's the kind of trajectory, slightly strange one of freak. And then you've got the geek as well, if you remember, because the geek's pretty much involved here, because that's a version of the dialect word geck, meaning a fool. 
And that was first applied to freaks who would entertain the crowds by doing such outlandish, horrible things as biting the heads off live chickens or live snakes. And the idea was that they were extreme and they were obsessive. And that is where very gradually it spawned the idea of the Greek who was studiously obsessive, somebody who really immersed themselves in their work. And now, as we've we've said before, Giles, haven't we? It's now actually a term of approbation. It's great to be a geek. I call myself a geek all the time because that's how I see myself. So it's come full circle. Some people call me not a geek, but a freak. In fact, P.T. Barnum, (laughs) his freaks, many of the early ones, weren't really freaks at all. His first major attraction in the 1840s was a, a character that he said was a mermaid, Fiji the mermaid. And And he said it was a creature with the body of a monkey and the tail of a fish. And Mm. he put it on display and he acknowledged later that it actually, he said, you know, I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. You know, they want a mermaid, I give them a mermaid. Here's Fiji. Uh, And it wasn't a mermaid at all. And people had mixed feelings about him. He he followed the mermaid uh, with another act, a real person, a small man whose real name was Charles Stratton, who he gave the name General Tom Thumb to, and advertised him as the smallest person that ever walked alone. The child, actually, was, I think, only four years old, but Barnum said he was already 11, and uh, he taught this child, who was clearly a, a remarkable young person, to imitate people. He did a, an imitation of Hercules, he did the Emperor Napoleon, and he exploited this boy, giving him wine to drink, giving him cigars to smoke, when I think he was only sort of five or six years of age. Tom Thumb had mixed feelings because Tom Thumb came to to Europe. He met Queen Victoria, who was much amused by him. Um, But though, actually, interestingly, she was both amused by him and and, and saddened by him. And of course, um, Barnum was involved with um, Jumbo, wasn't he, I think, as well? Indeed, he bought Jumbo from London Zoo. And I, am I right in thinking Queen Victoria tried to hold on to him? I mean, there was a big campaign to keep him in Britain, I think. And he was enormous, wasn't he? An African elephant, four metres tall. But anyway, I mentioned Jumbo because it is because of that elephant. And then, of course, Disney portrayed him in the film Dumbo. But it's because of that original elephant that we use Jumbo for anything from sausages to planes. Jumbo has joined the ranks of the great immortals because of his name. And I may have mentioned this to you before, but famously... Oscar Wilde, when he was in New York on one of his trips, went to Barnum and Bailey's Circus, and Barnum introduced Oscar Wilde to Jumbo. And it was then that Oscar Wilde came up with his belief that to live in the minds of people, you had to have a name of just five letters, like Oscar or Wilde or Jesus or Plato. These are the examples he gave. Or Giles. Or Giles or Jumbo. If you have a name of five letters, people will remember it. And Oscar Wilde said that if people like you, they will know you by your first name. So you think of, I don't know, Scylla or Elvis. But if they don't like you, they remember the five-letter surname, Trump. <laughs> so isn't that, isn't, isn't really that so well done, Jumbo? So give us some of the other, give us the origin of some of these other circus words. I mean, what about, uh, we discussed the big top itself. Yes, so the big top is um, what we call in language a metonym. So that's a word or it can be a name or an expression that's used as a substitute 
for something it's closely associated with. So, for example, Washington is a metonym for the US government. Downing Street is the same. Um, And so it is with the big top. So originally it was indeed the main tent of a circus. And then it just became a metonym really for the whole of the circus, which was entirely due to that main tent of the circus. It's the big top that the circus operates under. And in fact, one of the OED's very first reference is to Barnum from 1891, out on the road with Barnum's big top. Then we got the acrobats. Those are my favourites, I think. If I had to choose a favourite, it would be the acrobats. I don't know if you've been to one of the Cirque du Soleil performances. I'm sure a lot of the purple people have. I mean, they are just extraordinary. Um, So an acrobat is a nice name because it's actually a sibling of so many different words in English. So it's from the Greek acrobatos, which meant walk on tiptoe. But if you break that down, you've got akron, meaning a tip. And you will find that in words like Acropolis, which is the fortified part of a city, um, famously Athens, that was built on top of a hill. You've got acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. You've got an acronym because it's taking the initial or the top letters Uh of a word. You've got an acrostic, which is... um, a poem or a puzzle where the first letters in each line form a word. You've actually got acne as well because of the idea of the kind of spots forming a summit. So it's a relative of many, many other words in English that you might not realise, but that's where acro And the bat part? We've got the acro, the bat? The bat part is from the Greek banane, meaning to walk. So they are walking up high. And what about the jugglers? Yeah, the juggler, I mean, if you had to guess where juggle comes from, you would think it sounds like such an English word, doesn't it, really? It actually does go back to to Latin as well, but um, via French is so often. But the Latin was very different. It was joculari, meaning to jest. And of course, that's where we get joke from, uh, jocus. So it was to entertain with jesting, with tricks, etc. That was the idea. So it was, um, you know, jugglers are are providing entertainment through trickery and sleight of, well, not trickery, but sleight of hand and dexterity and dexterity as we know comes back to being right-handed just because we've always had an easier ride the acrobats might perform on the trapeze where does Mm. trapeze come from that's simply that's linked to uh, a trapezium because it's the shape of a trapezium which is a quadrilateral with is it one pair of sides that are parallel and that in turn goes back to um it's greek again it goes back to the trapeza meaning a table so it's purely because of the shape of a trapeze but so many of these are greek actually it's interesting isn't it um burlesque is one that's not greek that actually goes back to the italian burla or burlesco meaning ridicule or mockery because the idea was um originally that it was kind of slightly grotesque and then of course went on to meaning sort of mock heroic or mock pathetic, etc. I know you have these reservations about clowns and I understand mm. them, but it's interesting the way they've they become big figures in our culture, or certainly used to be. I, I mentioned Popov, this famous Russian clown. It, when I was a little boy, there was also an English clown called Coco the Clown. Do you remember his name? Oh, yes. So he's one I yeah. remember. And yeah. Coco the Clown was hugely famous. He appeared on TV as well as in circuses, uh, in children's comics. There was a little strip about Coco the Clown. And this idea of a famous national clown goes back. I wrote a biography of somebody called Dan Leno, who was known as the funniest man on earth. He was a clown in the sense that he was a a jest. He didn't perform in circuses. He really appeared in musical, but he was a a great pantomime performer. But he was like a national clown. And before him, the most famous clown was probably Joseph Grimaldi, the original 
Clown Joey. It comes from this character, Joseph Grimaldi, who, in a sense, was one of the founders of modern pantomime as we know it. My favourite story about Clown Joey, and he had his biography, his autobiography, was actually ghosted for him by Charles Dickens. That's how famous he was. He was such a big figure. And he suffered from depressive bouts, as sometimes clowns can do. And he went to see his doctor and said, you know, I I have these low depressions. I feel, you know, unhappy. And the doctor said, well, I'm not sure what to recommend. I suppose you could go and go, you know, have a laugh, go and see Clown Joey. And Joseph Cromaldi replied, but I am Clown Joey. (laughs) It's a great story told by Dickens in this this biography of Joseph Cromaldi. Are you quite fond of slapstick then? Because I think that's another reason why I'm not too fond of clowns. I'm not very good with slapstick. And we definitely mentioned before, slapstick literally goes back to a literal instrument that clowns would have and they would slap their thighs in kind of hilarity and make a big noise. It's just not really me. And the the origin of clown is quite interesting because it, it began meaning an unsophisticated country person and then was applied to anybody who was kind of rude or ill-mannered. And I think that sort of, even though I didn't know the etymology at the time, but that kind of idea of someone who's just very boisterous and loud and extrovert just didn't really sit with me being sort of quite meek and mild. But you've always loved them, Well, clearly. I understand what you're saying because, for example, the clowns in Shakespeare um, are often the least funny characters. You take a, a play like As You Like It, Touchstone, I mean, he sings some songs and he has some wordplay, but he's not a battle load of laughs. And I think even, you know, if you, if you play Festy in Twelfth Night, which I've done, you're struggling at times to to get the the house on a roar. Yeah, it is. Mm. And some people sort of groan at the idea of a clown coming on and being so obviously dressed to be clownish and clown-like. So the root word actually meant a buffoon, did it? A kind of simpleton? Um... Yes, absolutely. And it, it came from German, so it's a Germanic word, and it didn't appear in English until the Middle Ages. Then, as I say, it meant a kind of rustic. And as we know, we've always been quite snotty, as we would say, <laughs> written towards um, yokels, bumpkins, whatever you like to call them. We thought of uh, the town dwellers, city dwellers, thought of themselves as being urban and urbane and looked down on anyone from the countryside. And so it was with clown. Who invented the three ring circus? Because that expression has gone into general currency, hasn't it? The three ring circus. I think that's an American phenomenon where you actually had three rings and acts going on simultaneously in all of them. What's the first use of a, you know, it was like a three ring circus, people say. I don't say. know. Can you check that out? I tell you what, it's time for a break. So leave it with me and I will let you know as soon as we're back. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? no. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We're back. And I promised you that I would talk about the origin of three ring circus. Um, a circus that has three rings, as Giles says, but as a figurative sense of a showy or extravagant spectacle, but also a scene of confusion or disorder. First mention in the OED is 1898. 
And actually, Barnum is mentioned in the second one. Barnum clearly has a three ring, had a three ring circus, um, and that was 1904. So um, interesting. I have to say that one's new on me. But as you say, possibly originally American from American English, but um, definitely used figuratively now for something that's a bit all over the shop. Do you remember a band called Blue Magic? Life is a three ring circus. All of the ups and downs of a carousel that I know so well. Life is a three-ring circus, just one little ride on a merry-go-round, going round and round and round and round. Oh, life is a cabaret, old chum. Yeah. reminds me. As well as a three-ring circus. So there as we well go. As well as a three-ring circus. Well, time for some correspondence, which is often my favourite part of the podcast, because we love reading your emails. And the first comes from Asheen Kisden Island, who introduces us to two fantastic words. And I'm going to test you on these, Judd, see if you've ever heard them. Any idea what a collywobble is? Is it like the collywobbles? I have no idea. No, it sounds brilliantly, but um, Asheen was introduced to it recently by a friend. It's to walk purposefully towards an as yet unknown destination. I have looked this one up, Asheen, and as far as I can tell, it's pretty much a recent deliberate invention, but I absolutely love it. And that doesn't make it any less legitimate as a word. You won't find it in a dictionary. You'll only find it accompanied with this particular definition, which has then been spread, but I do love it. And the second one, Giles, is cornobble. Cornobble. Any idea what cornobble means? Cornobble. So it's the word corn followed by the word... Obble. Oh, yeah, obble. Or core. But, I've no, core core nobble. Core nobble. I've no idea. Is it nobbling somebody in a curious way? No, it, it reminds, the reason I really like this is it reminds me of conjobble, which is a dialect word, which Samuel Johnson called a low cant word. He didn't like this one very much, but it's to kind of get together and discuss. But I like to think it's getting together and discussing something over a bite to eat, to conjobble, uh, which I love. But no, cornobble is different and it means to slap someone with a fish. Oh, funny. Well, that's terribly is funny. That is, inc- that's the sort of thing a clown would do. They'd produce a bucket and slap you well, in the face. A corn wobble. That's a lovely word. Corn wobble. Corn wobble. Yeah. Forgive me. Corn Even nobble. better. Corn And again, you will find this in lots of different online websites, but you won't find it in any dictionary yet. Uh, but who knows? I, I absolutely love that word. You know that I am now coddy wompling on a daily basis because my friend Mr Motivator has told me that in order to keep myself upright I must Mm. squeeze this mythical orange between my shoulder blades every morning until the juice runs down my spine and then Mm. I must walk with purpose lifting my feet as I go toes up toes up I walk with purpose and I will be doing a coddywomple Doing the squeezing orange thing. If I walk like that, people would just no. think me very odd. No, no, they wouldn't. What you do is sit, sit comfortably. But I'm sticking my chest out well, that's in a really unnatural fashion. No, no. Well, no, but this is, as you're much younger than me, but as the years go by, we tend, particularly if we're looking at a screen all day, we tend to mm. stoop forward, our heads go forward. And this yes. corrects it. It's not suggesting you walk all the time like this. Just to correct it, you just okay. stand up and are squeezed, I picture an orange between your shoulder blades, oh, squeeze it, know. Squeeze it, squeeze that orange. Come on, Susie. Squeeze the orange really until hurting. the juice is, is the juice trickling oh. down your spine. I have. Oh, I've look, got a black look, back roller that does pretty no, much the this, same thing. In look how much better your posture is. No need for an expensive back roller. You've just got a fantasy orange between your shoulder mm. blades. The juice is and look beautiful posture there. Now, yeah, but pained face. Walk with okay. purpose. That's it. Walk with purpose. That's Coddy Wampus. Coddy Wampus. 
Okay, next email came from Chris Bowman, who has said that in conversation recently, he heard the word left in tatters, uh, which is a quite a standard British English phrase. And I suspect also in many other Englishes across the globe. And he's wondering where it comes from. Quite simple, this one, actually, Chris. It was given to us by the Vikings. So it was the Old Norse totur was a tatter. And that is related to an old English word meaning a rag and also an old German word zotter, which meant matted hair. So the idea is of things that are kind of very, again, dishevelled, matted together or just ragged in some way. Um, and that's where tata comes from, but it's incredibly old. And have you got a trio of incredibly old or at least incredibly interesting <laughs> words to share with us? I do. I have three words for you. Um, the first is quite tricky to say, but deliberately so, I think. It's quad libertarian. And a quad libertarian is an insult for a pedantic blowhard, somebody who argues over every single point. A quad libertarian. What, what's the origin? Why, why is it a quad libertarian? So you will find it in uh, the OED. This is, is not an entirely made, well, obviously every word is made up, but it goes back a long way. It's got history. It goes back to the 17th century. And a quad libet, uh, which is Q-U-O-D-L-I-B-E-T, was a, an academic exercise that you'd find in university in which a master or a bachelor would discuss questions on a subject. So it's basically arguing like a sort of proper academic debate. And the quad is what and libet means it pleases. So you talk about what, you know, whatever you like, in other words, but that has been extended to somebody who disputes, you know, kind of all the time and just engages in these kind of arguments for the sake of them, really, as they please, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Totally. Uh, the second one is, um, there's lots of different variations on this one, so I suspect the purple people will have their own version of this, but trantlums or trantles, there's also tranklements, those are, kind of, it's just bric-a-brac, miscellaneous objects of the type that you as a hoarder, Giles, probably have in abundance. Lots of tranklements in your house, I suspect. I like that. Tranklements. Yes. And the last one uh, is rather characteristic of British weather and that we've had quite a few thunder plumps, which I've mentioned before over the, well, over the summer, but over the year, really. The weather has been fulminous and fulminous weather is with lots of thunder and lightning, but the word is more often than not applied figuratively or metaphorically to something that resembles thunder and lightning. So you might have a fulminous argument if it's just, you know, quite a heavy and uh, loud and not particularly enjoyable it, one, I would say. It's like fulminating, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like fulminating. It's derived from... Yes, it's the same idea? Yes, absolutely. Same idea. You might get the fulminous roar of a jet engine, um, that kind of thing. So as I say, used mostly in a figurative sense. So to fulminate originally meant to emit thunder and lightning as of the sky, but then was used for com condemnation. So if somebody fulminated, they're just basically condemning. And again, brings us right back to that idea of criticising all the time. Have you a poem for us? Before I give you my poem, I'm going to do a bit of name dropping because hmm. people do get in touch to say, there wasn't much name dropping last week. Have you run out of names? No, I've not run out of names, but sometimes I forget the names I want to drop. Um, this mm. is uh, what Anno Domini does. But today I've been reminded of a game that I love playing and that I know we've played before, which is, who have you met at one remove? You know, and I often say oh, yes. how I was a friend of Christopher Robin, the real Christopher Robin, so I shook the hand that 
held the port of Winnie the Pooh. But today, another one has come up. Lenin was mentioned. This is pretty impressive by my standards. Popoff the Clown, I actually met in person. He shook my hand when I was a little boy in 1956. I can't pretend that I met Lenin because he died many years before I was born. Nor did I meet Trotsky. But at one remove but one, perhaps I did. Because researching my new autobiography, childhood memoir, Odd Boy Out, I was looking through a box of photographs and I came across a picture of me in my gap year visiting an old man in America. And I'm shaking hands with this old man in the photograph. And his father, this old man's father, turned out to be the head of the Communist Party in England in the 1920s. And this old man had a photograph of himself as a child on his father's shoulders, next to Stalin. And Stalin is shaking hands with this child, and I am shaking hands with the child who is now a man. So at one remove, I have shaken the hand of Stalin, Joseph Stalin, which at two removes means I've shaken the hand of Trotsky, uh, of Lenin, you name it. I am almost the personification of the Russian Revolution. That's that, yeah, that is I amazing. I have that. to think about who I, I don't think I can. I never can anyway. Well, maybe that's a bit of homework for next week. Will you do that? Will you do some homework? At one remove, somebody you've met so that at one remove, it's somebody remarkable. And if you can beat um, Stalin and Lenin, I will be impressed. I won't. I absolutely won't. I certainly have got a poem for you. And I mentioned, I know last week when we were talking about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I taught English at a school in America in the 1960s during my gap year. And that's when I discovered Emily Dickinson. She was a New England poet in Victorian times, and she wrote short, simple poems that didn't really become famous until after she died. And this is one of her short poems. It's written like a letter, a correspondence between two quite unlikely creatures. It's basically a fly writing to a bee. And this is how the correspondence goes. It's a, it's a poem called Bee, I'm Expecting You. It's by Emily Dickinson. Bee, I'm expecting you. Was saying yesterday to somebody you know that you were due. The frogs got home last week, are settled and at work. Birds mostly back. The clover warm and thick. You'll get my letter by the 17th. Reply, or better, be with me. Yours, fly. She was extraordinary. I, I, Emily Dickinson described beautifully um, in a poem called A Formal Feeling. Do you know that one? And it's it's about the numbness or the paralysis that comes after great pain or great grief. This is the hour of lead, first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. And it's just beautiful. A formal feeling is that sort of numbness. She just, she, she was a remarkable poet, I think. The most remarkable poet and also so modern, so accessible. Born 1830, 
died 1886, lived almost all her life in Amherst in Massachusetts, and yet she speaks to the world 150 years on. Quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Well, we hope that you have discovered a few extraordinary things during this episode of Something Rhymes With Purple. Um, Thank you, as always, for getting in touch with us as well. Um, And if you would like to still, the email address is purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale and our very own resident clown, it's... It's Gully. Don't you just want to cornubble him sometimes? (sighs) Yes, it's actually not a bad name for a clown. Gully the Clown.